As we uh, continue through Richard Sibbs' The Bruised Reed, let's go again to Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 17. This passage uh, about Christ that Matthew tells us about. Matthew 12, verse 17. Matthew writes in Matthew 12, 17, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So as we go to chapter three of Sibs's book, we move on for now to the phrase, after the, the bruised reed, he will not break. There in verse 20, it says, a smoldering wick he will not quench. Uh, or in the older version in Sibs's day, uh, he calls it a smoking flax, a smoking flax he will not snuff out, or a smoldering wick he will not quench. Now, what do you think it means to be a, smoke, a smoking flax or a, a smoldering wick? What does that mean, and how is that different? Is it different from being a bruised reed? What do you think? Okay, so the smoke is more offensive than maybe a bruised reed would be. A bruised reed you just throw away. Anything else? Anybody else have any thoughts? All right. Well, um, in the way that Sibs is writing about it, the bruised reed is the idea of weakness. So we might use words like humility, like being humbled, or being broken, feeling broken, and so that might come through physical suffering, it might come through uh, sin. Uh, so the bruised reed would be more of a suffering or feeling broken, whereas a smoking flax um, might get across more the idea of how there is very little. So you think of a wick, uh, think of a candle, and you think of just a little spark on the candle. So somebody tries to blow out the candle and you see a bunch of smoke and most of the fire goes out, but you might see one or two little sparks. And so the contrast, the way that he's bringing it out is that there is very little of something, very little grace in the person. So maybe we could make a, a medical comparison here that there's a difference between a broken body and a weak body. In both cases, uh, the person can't move. Maybe in the first case, the person can't move because all their bones are broken. 
In the second case, the person can't move because they're weak. And so the remedies are going to be different. Food and water for someone with a broken body isn't going to fix that particular problem. It's not going to help them move. Whereas with the weak body, that's what the weak body needs, is food and water. Maybe they are, they're malnourished, so they need to be strengthened. And so that's what he's getting at. With the smoking flax, you have a little bit of grace, and that grace needs to be fanned into flame. So here's uh, what Sib says in uh, the third sentence of the chapter. It's page 17 of the newer version of the book. So I looked at the, the newer books. They're a little bit different pages from this one. So I'll use the page numbers for those books. You can still get there's some out there on the bookstall. But this is the third sentence of the chapter, page 17. He says, The observations from this, from the smoking flax, are that in God's children, especially in their first conversion, there is but a little me measure of grace. And that little mixed with much corruption, which as smoke is offensive. But Christ will not quench the smoking flax. So chapter 4, the next chapter is going to be how Christ will not quench the flax. Uh, this chapter we're going to focus just on what is this and, and what does this look like in our lives? What does it mean to be a smoking flax? So he's using this image of the spark. The spark means you have little grace. Uh, you don't have a lot of grace, right? Uh, you're not this very mature Christian. And then the smoke is what Tony was talking about. The smoke means there's much corruption in us. There remains much remaining sin. And uh, so that's why that smoke is offensive. It's something that's not pleasant to be around. So we have all this smoke that our lives are producing. Uh, so this is what he means with this image. So today, here's basically what we're talking about. We're talking about assurance. How can I know that I'm a Christian? How can I be sure that I'm truly saved? Uh, what if I look at my life and I see such little grace? There is very little grace in my life. Or you might look at your life and you might see much corruption. So you th thought you're a Christian, but you know things happen in your life and you're just face-to-face -face confronted with how much sin is actually remaining in your heart. And you wonder, have I been faking it this whole time? Is this even real? Uh, in the Second London Confession, uh, there are, you know, almost every chapter, I think, is like my favorite chapter, but, but uh, I think chapter 18 is really, really one of my favorite chapters, and it's about assurance. And so uh, if you want to just think more about that, study that more, just go read that chapter, chapter 18. But it makes two points. First of all, that God wants Christians to have assurance. He wants us to be assured of our salvation, uh, to know that we have eternal life, as, as it says in 1 John. That's, John says, I write so that you may know you have eternal life. But it also has several paragraphs talking about how true believers can have their assurance shaken. And so the wording is that we have it in diverse ways shaken and diminished and intermittent. And so you kind of have both things in, those, in that chapter. The, the uh, encouragement that we should want 
to be sure of our salvation. And yet the reality of our experience that if you have these questions, if you have these struggles, that doesn't mean that you lack the Holy Spirit or that you're not a Christian, but that true believers do have, whether it's sin or through suffering in your life, they do have these doubts about their own assurance. So this is really what Sibs is trying to get at. How, how do you know you're a Christian when you have this little, only this little spark? Or you have so much smoke, you have so much corruption. So I'll read from the end of the chapter. Um, this is the last paragraph, pages 20 and 21 of the book. He says, from this mixture, this mixture of our sin and grace, from this mixture arises the fact that the people of God have so different judgments of themselves, looking sometimes at the work of grace, sometimes at the remainder of corruption. And when they look upon that, then they think they have no grace. Though they love Christ and his ordinances and, they, and his children, they love God's children, yet they dare not claim so near acquaintance as to be his. Even as a candle in the socket sometimes shows its light, sometimes the show of light is lost, so sometimes they are well persuaded of themselves, sometimes at a loss. So just like sometimes you see a, a fire burning and sometimes you see the flame coming up and sometimes the flame is not apparent, you can't see it, but that log, that candle is still on fire. In the same way, sometimes we know that we're saved, sometimes we wonder if we're saved. And so he's saying that this happens when we look at our corruption. You look at your corruption, and that makes you wonder if you're truly saved. Uh, so that's what he uh, says at the end of the chapter. And so the whole chapter is explaining uh, what this looks like. So first he says, grace is little at first. That's his first main point. Grace is little at first. When you become a Christian, you're like the little spark on the candle. That's the wick of your spiritual life is just a little spark. So there's a tension when we read the Bible, when we think about this issue, when we talk about becoming a Christian, what it means to be converted. So maybe you feel that for yourself. And uh, as, as a pastor, you, you want to know if... You know, people are converted, you want them to be saved, and you're always trying to figure out, is someone a true believer? And I thought, you know, this is, I think, relevant to us as parents, too. Those of us who have parents with kids, or who are parents with kids growing up in our home, uh, you want to know, how, do I, how can I see if my children are believers? And so here's the tension, is that, the Bible says when you become a Christian, you're made new. You're born again. Regeneration. You go from death to life. And so we want to see radical change taking place in someone who becomes a Christian. Uh, we want to see that in people when they, when they are coming to church. If they're not believers, we want to see them change radically. We want to see our children have this radical change from death to life, from 
the old man to the new man, because that is what it means to be a Christian, right? So the Bible says that. But then we have the reality of sin, the reality of sin and how it remains in us. And so we look at children, young people growing up. By children, I mean, you know, if you're under like 22, uh, you're, you're, you're still a child. Uh, maybe not officially, but that's how parents think. Um, so, so you're looking at the young person, at the child. You want to see a change. You want to see a radical change. We know that kids can have all the right answers. They can know the Bible. They can say all the things that they know that they're supposed to say. They can be moral. They can obey outwardly. And so we know that to be a Christian in the real way is more than that. Radical heart change. Love Christ. Love God. Walk in newness of life. Right? But then... What about immaturity? And what about sin? Where is the line between a young person doing something because they're immature and they have remaining sin, though they might be believers, and a young person who is an unbeliever and still dead in their sins? And that's why they continue in this sin. We can apply this, like I said, also to adults. Adults who continue to fall back into sin how do you know? Have they truly been saved? So hopefully, Lord willing, we'll get to that maybe uh, as, as we come to the end of the lesson. But Sibs's point here is that there are different stages of maturity in the Christian life. So let's look at 1 John uh, chapter 2. And we will read starting in verse 12. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. And really the whole letter of 1 John is about uh, this issue of assurance and how uh, someone knows that they're a true believer. They, they need to confess Christ. They need to love God. Um, they need to love the brothers. So they need to love the church. Uh, and uh, they need to not love the world. So all these things are what John is talking about as the marks of a Christian. But uh, here he, in verse 12, chapter 2, uh, he talks about different levels of maturity. So he says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, verse 14, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, verse 12, he mentions little children. Uh, I interpret this, many interpret this as designating everyone in the church that he's writing to. Um, you can just look at different verses in verse 28. If your eyes go down to verse 28, he says, and now little children. And so he's writing to all of them. 
chapter 3, verse 7, he calls them little children. Verse 18, he calls them little children. And then chapter 4, verse 4, and many more. So little children is the whole church. But then he breaks up the church into three groups. Fathers, young men, and children in verse 13. And then in verse 14, he goes back to the fathers and the young men. So in the middle are the, the children that are mentioned once. So this is where everybody is spiritually. It's talking about spiritual maturity, not physical age. It's talking to men and women. You are spiritually either a father, a young man, or a child in the faith. So the fathers are the mature ones. The young men, notice, are those who have overcome the evil one. They have made some sort of progress in their sanctification. They have, uh, you know, Paul tells Timothy, flee youthful lusts. Right? So there are certain, there's youthful lusts. There are certain sins that uh, young people have proclivities to and temptations to. Um, but these young men need to overcome these. And so they overcome the evil one. And then there are the children who, notice, notice what he says about them. You know the father. And it's, it's almost like he's saying, that's it. You, you haven't overcome a lot of your sins. You're still struggling with a lot of things. You're not mature, but you know the father. So you have this spark of grace. That is what Sibs is, is saying. They are the smoking flax with much remaining corruption. So, there is the reality that there are people who are true believers, and yet they are still spiritual children. And so, uh, we need to have realistic expectations, not that we uh, don't hold up the bar, that you need to become spiritually a young man or a father you need to overcome the evil one but uh, just because you still struggle with this corruption doesn't mean you don't know the father so sib says this is how the great things become great is by starting small he says nothing so little as grace at first nothing more glorious afterward so even uh, the, the glorious, uh, what we are at the end of glorified men and women starts with this little spark of grace. He uses a mushroom as an illustration. Uh, I don't know if you read his book and you, you notice that he uses a mushroom. He says mushrooms grow up quickly. Mushrooms just get puffed up with water. But they're not uh, growing, as far as I understood, uh, they're not growing by having more cells. Their cells aren't dividing. They're just, they have the same amount of cells that just puff up with water. And mushrooms are fragile, right? They're just these little things that get stepped on in the forest. But in contrast to the mushroom, he says, is the mighty oak tree. The mighty oak tree has stability, but it grows from the small acorn. Uh, so the mighty oak tree can be really small, growing very slowly, but the mushroom puffs up and grows quickly. And 
that would be what we would call you know, a false conversion, someone who's not truly a believer. So, well, he goes on and he says, in the small, in the, page 18, in the small seeds of plants lie hidden bulk and branches, bud and fruit. So just like in a plant, uh, or the, the seed of the plant is all of those fruits and all of those branches, it starts with the seed. So he says, in a few principles lie hidden all comfortable conclusions of holy truth. All these glorious fireworks of zeal and holiness in the saints had their beginning from a few sparks. So here's his application then. Let us not therefore be discouraged at the small beginnings of grace, but look on ourselves as elected to be holy and without blame. So don't be discouraged by small beginnings of grace. Look on yourself as one who has been elected to be holy. And so there he's, he's still reminding us that we don't want to stay there. We don't want to use this as an excuse for immaturity and to remain in our sin. We must strive as we grow in maturity in the faith. We are chosen to be holy and without blame. But don't be discouraged that it starts with just this small beginning of grace. Okay, so I have a question. It's a little bit of a trick question. Um, is there a difference between weak, uh, sorry, weak faith, weak faith and strong faith? Is there a difference between weak faith and strong faith? If not, why not? If so, why? <laughs> what is the difference between weak faith and strong faith? So you're saying there's no difference in our relationship with God. But you're saying the difference would be in maybe the fruit. Yes. Good. Anybody else want to further that? Uh-huh. Uh, yes, so... You're saying strong faith will, will lead to sanctification, more sanctification. So you'll be further sanctified as you grow on in the faith. Okay, good. Tony? Okay. 
So God proves himself over and over. We grow in our confidence that he will answer. Chris? Perfecting our faith. Yeah. Good. So um, the way that I was thinking about it is in the, the aspect of the difference is our own personal sense of what is real, what is true. So objectively and subjectively. So objectively, strong and weak both have the same Christ and they both have the same God, but uh, our experience of that and our, maybe you can say feelings, uh, our feelings about uh, whether that is true or false um, or how strong that is depends on the strength of our faith. Um, so, you know, Jesus said, faith as small as a mustard seed can move mountains, and that's because you're putting your faith in God to do that work. Um, Thomas Watson, another Puritan, he says, a weak faith may lay hold on a strong Christ. A weak faith may lay hold on a strong Christ. And he uses the example of the woman who comes to Jesus and she touches his garment. And so she's healed, not because she grabs onto Christ, uh, not because she even touches him, but because she touches his garment. And so what is it that healed her? It was Jesus and his power. And she just had to touch him and his garment in a sense and, and get all of that power so that she could be healed. So... Um, here in this context, you know, Sibs is talking about weak faith. So he's encouraging us to not uh, look down on ourselves or others and, and grow discouraged because of weak faith. Because the answer is, if you have weak faith, if you're looking to Christ, if you're like the woman who just wants to touch the garment of Christ, you can be healed. Uh, you think about the Psalms too. You know, in the Psalms, uh, sometimes it's a bit shocking the way that they talk to God. Um, they call out to God, How long, O Lord? And you know, Psalm 88 is maybe the most famous one where he ends with, you know, he doesn't say, God, you are my salvation. He just says, Darkness is my only companion. And uh, that's how he ends the Psalm. But we see faith even in that psalm because he's going to God. So no matter how much the darkness is around him, at least he is going to God. and He recognizes he needs to touch the garment of Jesus. So back to what uh, we, we brought up earlier. Maybe you're thinking about yourself 
Maybe you're thinking about children, your children. Well, there's no like one answer that I'm going to give that's going to solve every case. So I don't have any answers necessarily. Uh, Parents and pastors need wisdom and discernment. And as you look at your life, you have to evaluate, you know, fruit and and everything that's happened in your life and, and what you're trusting in. But I think just in the case of parents, at least, we want to look for sparks of grace. We want to look for the smoking flax. There's a difference, and I think this is important uh, as a parent when I think about it. There's a difference between me knowing if a child is a Christian and whether that child is a Christian or not. So, of course, God knows that child's heart. Um, Because I don't know the heart, I want to see more flame, right? I want to see more of the wick lit on fire. But that's not to say that there there could be a spark of grace there. Uh, I might not be able to see it very well, but it could be there. And so what I want to do as a parent is not like, come to the right answer. I got to know for sure right now. But what I want to see as a parent is I want to see sparks of grace and encourage sparks of grace. And so you say, you know what? Here's good fruit. Uh, I can see good fruit in your life in this way or in that way. And you need to keep going in that. I want to encourage you to keep going in that. So, you know, as a parent, you don't necessarily have to say, no way you're not a Christian. You just told a web of lies last week. You you were so mean to your brother last week. There's no way you're a Christian. But instead to, if you do see sparks of grace, to encourage those. Here's good fruit. Keep going. Keep fanning that flame. And we'll see. You know, as parents, as pastors, we... We want to see fruit. We want to see that flame on the wick. Okay, so that was uh, part one of the chapter on uh, grace being little. Now he says grace is mingled with corruption. And this is related to this, obviously. But he focuses now on this image of the smoke. Uh, A little wick gives off a lot of smoke. And that smoke is offensive. And so the smoke represents our sin. God allows us to continue to fight with sin because it shows our need for Christ. Day by day, the Christian needs to remember his need to depend upon Christ, to have the Spirit working in him. And so God Unfortunately for us, God doesn't save you and totally take away all of your fights with sin. He makes you new. He gives you new desires, but he doesn't take away sin because every day he wants you to go to Christ. So we need to understand that true believers will have much sin mixed in with their grace. Uh, I was talking uh, uh, 
uh, about this with my kids as uh, my kids are getting older and they're reading the Bible more on their own and reading different parts of the Bible. And so it's interesting when, you know, kids have heard certain stories growing up as kids and then they start reading the Bible. And so, for example, uh, reading the story of Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38. As a kid, you grow up and you think, oh, Judah was this great guy. He is in the family of the Messiah. He's the father, the patriarch of Jesus. And, and then he did that. He did that with uh, his daughter-in-law. And you read the stories of Abraham and Jacob, uh, Samson. I don't know why Samson gets uh, so much positivity among kids because Samson was a really, really bad guy. Uh, he had a prostitute, one wife that he left, and then he had another wife, Delilah. And, and that, none, none of those marriages or relationships were good. Samson was a really bad guy. Samson did whatever he saw was good in his eyes. Uh, and then, of course, you know, there's King David and, and adultery, and there's Solomon and his 700 wives, on and on and on. And so maybe we even have this idea as we think about people in the Bible. Maybe when you think about King David, for example, you focus so much on all the grace. There's a lot of, well, maybe not a lot, but there's some really bad stuff in David's life. There's a lot of bad stuff in a lot of these other people's lives. And so that should help us uh, understand this concept of much corruption and uh, understand that we too will struggle with great sin. So Sib says, the purest actions of the purest men need Christ to perfume them. And this is his office. This is his work. When we pray, we need to pray again for Christ to pardon the defects of our prayers. So he says the purest actions of the purest men need Christ to perfume them. He uses the example of prayer. You know, maybe you feel this way. Do you pray and then you think, well, I need to pray for my prayers. My prayers are so bad. My prayers are so weak that I need to pray that God would make up for my bad prayers or um, your repentance. You know, people have said this before that we need to repent of our repentance because our repentance is so weak. Our repentance is so shallow. But Christ perfumes all of our prayers and all of our works. You could think of that in a negative sense. You could say, wow, everything I do is awful. God's not pleased with anything that I do. It's all just filthy rags. So what's the point? What's the point of trying? Does God really uh, love me? Well, that's the negative way to look at it. The positive way is to say, but you have Christ. You have Christ perfuming all of your works. So God does hear our prayers. He hears your weak prayers. God does look at your repentance and he loves your repentance that even is weak and shallow. 
God sees your works that, you know, are full of corruption, full of bad motives, but God does look at that and he sees that they're purified by Christ. And so he's pleased. So one more uh, quote from Sibs uh, on page 20. He says, this forces us to pitch our rest on justification, not sanctifications. Sanctification, which besides imperfections has some stains. So your sanctification has stains, but not your justification. And so Sibs is telling you, reminding you to pitch your rest, your hopes on your justification. So this is getting back to, this is the main point of this chapter. So how do you have assurance? How can you know you're saved? What do you do when you have these questions and doubts? It's pretty simple. You look to Christ. You rest upon justification in Jesus Christ. Stop focusing on your sanctification or your lack of sanctification, but look at what Christ has done. And so you remember, yes, God really loves us. He accepts us. We are secure because of what Christ has done. And so we as Christians, this is really what we need to think about over and over again every day. This is why we need the church. It's why we need Sunday school lessons and sermons because we know justification. We know what Jesus has done on the cross, but we need to bring it to mind. We need to apply it again week after week after, after your past week of bad sanctification. You need to call to mind again that you are justified in Christ and that will help you in your sanctification. So Paul told Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. It's interesting that Paul would tell Timothy to remember Jesus Christ, but that's what we need to do. Remember Christ, risen from the dead, seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's what we need. Let's pray.